Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we are back. We are doing it again. We're doing it again. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be taking you this week through George Jackson's Blood in My Eye, starting on page 19. Uh, and this week we are going to be, this is the second episode of a recording session, so there are uh, no current events from last week have happened in the mm-hmm. last hour since we started recording the last episode. Uh, so this is still coming to you from April 3rd, so if something monumental has happened, we'll probably have gone and recorded a current events episode about it. Uh, but if yes. not, if everything continues on the path that it's on, we are just diving right into the work this week so starting on page 19 in another of his reports after the chicago murders of hampton and clark and the five-hour shootout at black panther headquarters in los angeles he writes the fact of american terror slave existence in general seems to have almost destroyed the nervous system of the black man here they are frightened and they feel they are smart for doing so those that were unaffected, those that escaped, those that refused to be intimidated, dismayed, prudent to the point of cowardice, have either joined or supported the Black Panther Party. They got down pretty cold. One point needs to be cleared up, however. I recall you remarking that it is an urban guerrilla situation, the military proper must be hidden, that in an urban guerrilla situation, the military proper must be hidden, separate from the political front, since unlike a classical Mao Giap countryside struggle where the enemy's principles force forces are 30 miles down the road with us the enemy is all around within a few moments of strike there should i feel be one branch that is purely political operating the wrench strikes the breakfast programs the people's bazaars where all sorts of food and clothing utensils and tools are sold hospitals or clinics free of course and what i will term cottage shops to employ those who will work for the new medium of exchange love and loyalty at such things as the making of the clothing and canning of the food for the people's bazaar there should be the super secret branch to enforce the military the comrades with the nervous equipment to nervous equipment to make the best use of the m60 the m16 the flamethrower we're back to the flamethrower the hand grenade the mortar oh we've got mortars now um our armored vans and equipment in front and plenty of gun ports bulletproof tires etc you dig one of the large trucks properly prepared, plastic may be the best armor. One and a half inches will stop a 220-grain slug fired from a 45 submachine gun. Two inches to three inches will protect you from high-power rifle bullets. And with a heavy armor-piercing, ammo-equipped M60 port in the front cab pointing in the direction that the truck is moving forward along the street, is more effective than a tank of the Yankee style. The machine gun in the front cab and one pointing out to the rear from the trailer has whatever street they are moving down in a guerrilla ambush tactic we'll call angulation. Each one of these guns pointing front and back up the street and back down it has the advantage of being able to rack that entire street with only a slight back and forth lateral movement. One armor piercing bullet may render several of the unrighteous dead. There will be a lot of guerrilla tactics in here. Within that, you can see, you know, uh, the ripe, the, the clear... Um, more broadly applicable theory, uh, and exactly why he formed the Black Gorilla family, right? Is you had the Black Panther Party. That's the organizing party. That's, you know, uh, the people's shop, the people's breakfast, everything like that. And then the Black Gorilla family was meant more to be kind of the muscle. 
right especially with the prison system yeah because that's where it started was was you need an organization you're not going to have a traditional black we talked about it a couple weeks ago you're not going to have the traditional black panther party within the prison system because what you're you're not organizing it's like you can organize people's breakfast or the people's bazaar or things like that when you're incarcerated so the the material conditions you're in define the sort of organizing you're going to do define the sort of yes of, of organization you can can build and what it means can accomplish yeah, and so there it's going to be more limited specifically to political education and uh, defense, right? Yeah. Um, but even on the outside, you're going to need defense and clandestine operations. And, you know, this is something that we've said many times, um, you know, and it's been said by by Lenin, by Castro, you know, no one wants violent revolution, right? We want no. as few, as, this as peaceful as possible, as few casualties as possible. We will do everything we can to make this as peaceful as possible because we want our people to live. We want people to live for the revolution. We, people need to be willing to die for the revolution, but people need to be enthusiastically wanting to live for the revolution. We, you know, what is this revolution for? For, right it's to yeah. improve and lengthen the lives of the oppressed masses right yes. um if they don't live there's no point okay yeah. um nonetheless these systems they, they don't give up their power easily they force violent revolution and you need to be prepared for that mm-hmm and comrade the pigs are so proud of their new little copters they're suckers it's almost comical to hear them boast and watch them look up to the sky with the pride of power the pig who will get up in one of those things is as stupidly suicidal as a duck trying to outfly a charge of 12 gauge shot the fierce and beautiful kong shoot down a couple dozen of the very biggest and best copters yankee invention can produce every week these things that the pigs use are toys sitting ducks one i mean one solid or armor piercing 30 caliber bullet aimed at any one of several points the tail rotor the hub of the main rotor or even the operator will reduce 200,000 worth of Yankee invention to scrap. I was pursuing this joke of a secondary education when the whole thing occurred, but acting with my small thing would have hardly helped much, though it might have helped raise consciousness some. The besiegers attacked from the rear. The idea of it, strong. Militarily, it would have demonstrated to the pigs that the Panther Party is not out there on limb, on the limb alone, and of course it would have promoted among the people that confidence of ability we always speak of when together. How would they have felt, the pigs and the people, if the nameless, faceless, lightning-swift soldier of the people could have reached up, twisted the tail of their $200,000 deathbird, and hurled it into the streets, broken ablaze? I think that sort of thing has more to do with consciousness than anything else I can think of. Long live the panther, power to the people who don't fear freedom. Jonathan was 16 years old then, I repeat. Consciousness is the opposite of indifference, of blindness, blankness. Promoting consciousness involves the general dissemination of the concept that each of us is part of a universal action and interaction, The poles are some, that poles are somewhere connected, that there are material causes for trauma, vertigo, degenerative disease, connections, connections, cause and effect, clarity on their relation and interrelations, the connection with the past, continuity, flow, movement, the awareness that nothing, nothing remains the same for long, and it follows that if the, if the thing is not building, it is certainly decaying. That life is revolution, and that the world will die if we don't read and act out its imperatives. Not on its own will it die, but rather because the forces of reaction have created imbalances that will kill it. The seeds of its own destruction, our destruction too, in the epoch of the bomb, the nerve gases, the massive precipitation of industrial wastes. Consciousness is a knowledge, recognition, 
foresight, common experience, and perception, sensibility, alertness, mindfulness. It stirs the senses, the blood. It exposes and suggests. It will objectify, enrage, direct. There are no positive formulas for a thing so complex. We have guidelines only to help with its growth. This means that after we are done with our books, that we they must be put aside, and the search for method will depend on observations, correct analysis, creativity, and seizing the time. I mean, that that last sentence yeah. right there, I mean, that, that sums it up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, you have to put the books out into action, right? And like he said, life is revolution. If you just leave the forces of reaction to their vices, right, they'll screw this thing up somehow. Empires only live a couple hundred years or whatever the bullshit of the day is, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's only going to kill all of us. And he cited even at environmental factors, right? Uh, obviously, you know, he didn't know much about climate change at the time, um, but he was talking about industrial you know, waste. Industrial wastes. Um, obviously, the direct thing, because it's not the earth itself that will die. It's it's creatures on it, namely people. Um, so he's talking about the nerve gases and the bombs, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's exactly what reaction will come with. That's what fascism is, right? The forces of reaction have always been set inside liberalism and so you know as soon as those forces of reaction are animated to violence because capitalism is in crisis that is fascism it's it's violence in the name of capitalism and it can no longer be laissez-faire and so it wholly loudly boldly and violently embraces all of the hierarchies constructed by capitalism right um, you know, racial hierarchies were created by colonialism and enslavement. It wants to reinstitute those. Gender hierarchies, um, are, are created from, from, you know, these colonial ideas of the nuclear family, right? The hierarchies of bosses, you know, against the workers, right? And, and, and fervent hatred of, of trade unions. Uh, the hierarchies of, of nationalism against the outside, right? We have our beautiful capitalist country in our waves and we must protect that from the outside interference. Um, these are all hierarchies that have been created. Oh, hierarchies against people with disabilities, right? Um, you know, disabled people all of a sudden are, are less, you know, useful. It's less constructive to capitalism, right? Um, and so they just go by the wayside and the eugenics kicks up. Sometimes it's a pandemic and people are just told to live with it. You know, screw, screw immunocompromised people. We're just learning to live with that because profit must talk, right? It's, it's all of the hierarchies created by a laissez-faire environment a laissez-faire environment that can kill people you know we we had um it was just march right there was same all the americans that pretend to know about anything irish right but no one's going to talk about more as anything but the potato famine you know and, and understand that that was intentionally forced laissez-faire capitalism that created a genocide of starvation mm-hmm. um against irish people right there's no longer those laissez-faire mechanics to kill people and destroy people it suddenly hands on and enforcing those hierarchies it is the force of reaction and reaction comes with guns and bombs and gases and hatred and genocide that's how it comes that's what it is absolutely Sometime after the December 4th, 1969 shootout around the Panther Party Los Angeles headquarters, Jonathan commented on the connections, the aftermath. This is a couple page long quote. David, do you want to take this one? 
Sure. Have you grasped the significance of the backlash? It has stung the fascist. People are in foment, all of them of all persuasion. They don't dig midnight or dawn raiding parties, bullets with steel jackets, cowardly pigs perched upon their roofs, the same gases manufactured for use against Vietnamese liberators blowing back in their faces. Repression. Do you see the effect it has on the uncommitted? Comrade... Repression exposes. By drawing violence from the beast, the Vanguard Party is demonstrating for the world to examine just exactly what terms their rule is predicated on. Their power to organize violence are acquiescence. But check. Blacks are conditioned to acquiesce. They have in general been led to believe that the system is the product and property of the white man and that the white man will protect it with his all. That the white man is a killer, a reflex killer, that all we can ever do is hope for a reform or expanding of the system to include a few of us who can make ourselves acceptable. It's too big for us. You can't fight City Hall. It can't happen in America. All of that shit. Pig shit. Right? And then I that's a huge quote there. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm, I'm yeah. pausing it there. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, everyone, everyone, it's always, and again, he's talking, you know, a theory within black communities among black people but everyone of any socialist persuasion right it's america's too big you can never topple america oh you just fetishize your little revolution and you'll never get it ha 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 and it's a bunch of shit it's just a it's a bunch of fucking bullshit right um double check all of the objective conditions are present here in the black colony for revolution the physical thing i mean want and want to the real feeling not the various pretenses east los angeles hasn't changed a bit since you were out watts is still a depressed area many of the west side districts are starting to resemble the older black districts the issue of of unemployment is still the same we do 30 to 40 percent of the nation's work for one percent of the returns and a huge pool of us is always kept unemployed to reduce the value of the labor of those who are just like 10 years ago just like 1864 to 65 when we were thrown on the labor market hungry ragged crowded into clabberds and unhappy nothing has changed since you left the street comrade not in this respect at least perhaps our condition stands out a little more glaringly that's all but you know what's been been building the vanguard has viciously attacked the system the omnipotent system attacked by the slave sort of like the worker bee growing so disgusted with the quality of his life that he turns and attacks the bear the other bees will understand they do understand and all sorts of bees even those who thought the bear was their rightful ruler see him differently when he foams at the mouth and bites at his own tail. I think you were on the right track with the idea concerning repression. It is, it has to be, a part of the revolutionary process, a necessary stage in the development of revolutionary consciousness. The situation being as it was and is, the black experience is what I'm referring to here. The milder Lynch example type repression is accepted by a us as a necessary part of life but the new harsher thing brought on by political thrust of the vanguard party serves to show even the most tractable of the reformers among us that firstly the system will not or actually cannot meet our demands secondly it clearly illustrates the real terms of our existence under capitalism and the nature of it and of how foul a piece of the pie would be even if we could have some one fundamental problem remains, the survival of the Vanguard political party, and I mean in good form. We must think to the righteous fielding of a clandestine army. That's written by someone named John. It was Jonathan Jackson. 
Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, it was Jonathan Jackson. Uh, <laughs> See, Lenin, Guevara, and Fanon, all in their particular fashion, postulate that before revolution can take place, all other forms of redress must be exhausted, clearly exhausted. Electoral processes must have broken down. The confidence of the electorate in any of the old forms completely shattered. Confidence in the ability of the old system to honestly organize any aspect of public life must be shaken to its core. That, I mean, that yeah. feels very prescient. Yes. That yes. feels Holy very, cow. very hyper prescient. <laughs> uh, yes. Years and years ago, it may have been an acceptable tactic to organize a people's ticket of solid worker and revolutionary credentials, arm it with an ideal platform, only to be defeated by a mudslinging opportunist warlord, demonstrably inferior, scum-swilling pig. Then pass out a pamphlet to explain to the people how the system has failed them, or speak to speak it in Pershing Square, or years ago in the campus hall. Today, it is not a tactic. It's counter-revolution. After 40 years, it's pretty clear that it will not suffice. Add another... 40 years onto that number. Sure. Uh, years ago, working with and attempting to influence union leadership may have been judicious, but the government has long since infiltrated and bought off this leadership and legislated away the strike. Union hall speeches and pamphlet passing are playing at revolution. I will say here, while that feels at the time he was writing this and up until very, 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 very recently, that statement still felt evergreen. Especially with the gains we're seeing in, in with labor now, with with the organization of of the Amazon mm-hmm. labor unions, where I mean, I think we're starting to see a new kind of union emerging. In, Something in the a little more day. grassroots rather than tied to like AFL CIO. Exactly, thing. more more yeah. more in the spirit of what unions were always intended to be, um, and back to this not these conglomerate organization sort of things, but again a grassroots led by the actual workers, led by the people mm-hmm. that it actually represents. Uh, well, movement even, for workers' rights. Even with that, that's a little different than what he's talking about too. Like he's talking about working with union leaders to. Mm-hmm you know, infiltrate the unions and, and this is a, you know, a workers, um, you know, uh, structure. So making sure it's actually revolutionary and people are educated and things like that. Right. That's not being against forming a new union when one is necessary. And when unionization has been stripped compared to the seventies, when he wrote this. Exactly. And it's been stripped the seventies. We saw it. And then he would have seen it even further. Uh, had he lived Mm -hmm. under, I mean, obviously Reagan did some of the most, (laughs) <laughs> tremendous damage to unions in this country that anyone could have done single-handedly. Um, yeah. But that being said, again, I do think there is, I think we're starting to see the for, the, the formation of new new kinds of unions and, and new new revolutionary energy in that space um, that I yeah. think will carry over and, and will will prove for, will hopefully prove prove advantageous for, for all the working class. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's still yet to be determined, right? The future exactly. is Exactly. No, no, no. Is, no. This is, is still very book. much in the air, very much a, 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 a new and, and evolving thing. But I'm just mm-hmm. hope. I guess I'm hopeful um, yes, that but maybe every- the lessons are being learned, especially when you hear the the where these organizers that are organizing these new unions are are bringing their foundations from. They're talking yes. about what is William Z. Foster. They're talking about um, uh, bringing in actual communists, actual peeps, you know, you know, full on socialists and, and all yeah. sorts of actually revolutionary people uh, when they're when they're building these unions and use and the tactics that they're using. So, again, I, I, I do think that is hopeful. Yes. 
Yes, but that doesn't change how correct the words are that George Jackson is talking about for the existing union oh, yeah. structures that are, you know, anti-communist and integrated with the Democratic Party and, mm-hmm. you know, work work closely with or have police unions incorporated into them, which stands directly against the people. Exactly. You know, things like that, right? Exactly. No. Just just some more context, just some more mm-hmm. some more food for thought on that particular section. Mm-hmm. Um it isn't revolutionary it, or materialist to disconnect things, to disconnect revolutionary consciousness from revolutionizing activity, to build consciousness with political agitation and educational issue making alone is idealistic rather than materialist. This effect, the effect has been reformism rather than revolution. When any election is held, it will fortify rather than destroy the credibility of the power brokers. When we participate in this election to win instead of disrupt, we're lending to it credibility and destroying our own. Now, all- let, let me be clear there, yeah. too, again, because this is where he's pulling from Lenin, okay? Mm-hmm. It says, when we participate in this uh, election to win instead of disrupt, we're lending to its credibility and destroying our own. What is left open is running for election to disrupt, which is something that Lenin was very much you know, believed in and it th- changes how you run and whether or not that is still a modern strategy is open, but to just straight up win, right. And accommodating mm-hmm. to try to win as soon as you're playing into the system. Oh, I won't denounce the troops. I'll, I'll kiss the asses. I'll work in with the, the democratic party and, and mm-hmm. be a wing of it or, or whatever, you know, you're trying to, to, to win above holding your principles above disruption, yeah. And now all of a sudden you're into reformism, right? Even if you do win, that's that's the goal of winning, right, is reformism. And sure, we want these reforms for the people. You want to gain power and start the ball rolling, right? Yeah. But when you're winning through winning elections, not only are you accommodating the system and validating the system and strengthening and reinvigorating the system, uh, but you're only winning reforms in that sense. Exactly. With all the factors of control over the electoral process in the hands of the minority ruling class, the People's Party can always be made to seem isolated, unimportant, even extraneous. If these tactics still give the appearance of revolution to some after decades of miscarriage, we are justified in replacing them as vanguard. When people begin to express their disgust at the demagogic and reformist maneuvers of the vanguard parties, they will discover in real action a new form of political activity, which in no way resembles the old. Uh, we have a quote from a uh, work we've already read word for word, uh, France Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. Uh, hey, there we go. Here we go. These politics are the politics of leaders and organizers living inside history who take the lead with their brains and their muscles in the fight for freedom. These politics are revolutionary and social, and these new facts, which the narrative will now come to know, exist only in action. They are the essence of the fight, which explodes the old colonial truths and reveals unexpected facets, which brings out new meanings and pinpoints to the contradictions camouflaged by these facts. The people engaged in the struggle, who because of it command and know these facts, go forward, freed from colonialism and forewarned of all attempts at mystification, inoculated against the all national anthems. Violence alone, violence committed by the people, violence organized and educated by its leaders, makes it possible for the masses to understand social truths and gives the key to them. 
Without that struggle, without that knowledge of the practice of action, there's nothing but a fancy dress parade and the blare of trumpets. There's nothing save a minimum of readaptation, a few reforms at the top, a flag waving, and down there at the bottom, an undivided mass still living in the Middle Ages, endlessly marking time. If I had to guess, that would be pulled from on violent, from the section on violence. Yeah, yeah, that first chapter on violence. Because that was <laughs> something Fanon said very specifically, right? You talk about radicalizing people, radicalizing people, radicalizing people. Well, people that have been dehumanized, um, how were they ever going to be radicalized without understanding their humanity? And one of the ways they're radicalized by understanding that they are human is seemingly gaining it back through violence since it was violence that took it away. And what that specifically means is not that like violence is what makes you human and makes you whole, but that violence then is the path to power when power has been taken away by nonviolence. And when you get remnants of power, when you recognize yourself as someone capable of holding and managing power and being part of a group in power, you suddenly start feeling your humanity and, and, and growing into it, right? And that's one of those things, you know, again, when you're nihilistic, oh, we'll never win. We'll never, you know, you don't realize that, but you're shunning your own humanity. Oh, I don't have power. It's just my place. Yeah. I'm just a belowling, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just an underling, right? I don't know why I said belowling. I'm just an underling. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm some, some part of some subclass and that's where I belong, right? Yeah. Even if you don't think that, even if you think that's wrong and I'm just as human, you don't realize that you're, you're saying that and telling yourself that when you're like, okay, well, the power is just, it's just not meant to be mine, right? Yeah. Whereas when you go, this belongs to me. I'm part of this. I should be empowered. I'm, I'm, you know, this is, this is an injustice and it can't be stood for and it should be won back and it is worth this fight. And if violence is going to be used against me, I'm going to push back on it. That's when you're gaining and recognizing and feeling your power as a human. Yeah. You want to take it, David? Yes. In the general retreat to avoid full commitment, to right the discomfort of our out of revolution, some have raised a debate among us that has degenerated into name calling, quoting the same authorities to validate diametrically opposed ideas, and ultimately creating a process that is dividing us into two mutually exclusive or contradictory groups. The overall effect is to reduce us to a caricature. Oh, man. Uh, That's, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, uh, that's pretty dead on. Yeah, and that's something that that you can see, you know, right? Oh, uh, Lenin would would call this imperialism. How could you? How could you ever, you know, say anything nice about about Russia and and blah blah blah? Right? I mean, that's the kind of thing you get, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you get that a lot of times with uh, people talking about. Um, you know, a lot of Marx quotes, right? Marx gets misquoted all the time. I mean, we've talked about this in the State and Revolution. That's first, first paragraph, yeah. first page, State and Revolution, right? Yeah. That's the old Bernstein tactic. Um, but Marx gets misquoted all the time by people. You know, I mean, people act like it's their, their prophets and it's, it's a Bible verse rather than understanding the work completely and pulling out those quotes to remind people like, Hey, this is what the work broadly says and this is why it says it. And we all, you know, believe this or claim to believe this, how are we applying this or is this not applicable or wrong and we should revise it, right? Um, that's how quoting should work, but instead it's like a Bible verse. It's like, God said this and how dare, you know, it's like Marxism needs to be some kind of Christianity. We have talked, have we talked, I forget who the Brazilian Marxist-Leninist that wrote about this a couple years ago was, but but there was a Brazilian um, uh, Marxist that wrote uh, a little bit about how, you know, and again, this leans in Orientalism too much, and we shouldn't do or you know the the idea that like t- 
time is frozen in in the east right and they're they're behind and they're they're ancient customs and people talk about like confucianism in china and stuff right that's that's orientalism but there's some small element of that that carries on with culture anything in your history carries on with your culture and something that gets unrecognized in western culture is people think about like islamic culture confucian culture whatever in eastern um places but no one thinks about how christianity seeps into Western culture and American culture. And that's where we get a lot of like the, the martyrdom, right? If you were a failed revolutionary, that's why people can, that, that like look down or judge Fidel negatively can romanticize Che and, and things like that, right? As long as you're a martyr, you know, as long as you're never winning. And that's why revolutions they don't think can win can always be just. They're the underdog. But then once you win power, you have to be criticized. You know, it, it was a very, good understanding of christianity but i also see that seep in when people quote marx too right it's it's suddenly this christian idea of like a bible verse rather than this book of theory that we collectively decided was right and useful for revolution being utilized properly when we say brazilian marxist not long ago are we talking like in the 90s or are we talking about like no i'm talking about like 2019 okay okay i was like are we talking about paulo Freire? like i must say i'm not no, no, okay, no. It okay. was someone oh, from like Sorry. the no, it was someone from like Communist Party Brazil okay. that wrote it. I can't I can't remember what it was, but it was it was basically discussing that we should understand because even even people that come from different backgrounds, right? American Jews, um American, you know, atheists and agnostic people, there's still something about hegemonic culture that that mm-hmm. you know spreads about with whatever the dominant you know, or historic religion in a region is, right? And so long as we're in this white supremacist settler colony, Christianity is that dominant religion, and it affects cultural institution and cultural attitudes, even to people that aren't Christian, and especially to people that are Christian within that, and you can see those ramifications and effects. And, you know, again, the uh, the uh, writer was specifically talking about you know, martyrdom and, and, and romanticization of, of failure, right? Mm-hmm. But you also have to see that with how Westerners can abuse Marx, right? And how they can quote Marx. And, and so it was really interesting the way George Jackson bluntly talks about, you know, um, quoting the same authorities for diametrically opposed ideas, because that's exactly what people do with, say, the Bible, right? Yeah. You know, you can quote the Bible and, and say, like, burn all the heretics and sinners and, and, you know, gay people and everybody's bad or whatever. Or you can quote the Bible and, and say, like, you know, don't judge people for sin and people aren't sinners for not being in a, a specific group. And, you know, all of the religious, mighty, wealthy hypocrites are not doing God's will. And, and, you know, you can go completely different directions with that right and Mm -hmm. people do the same thing with marx and then they're at each other's throats instead of building revolution yeah and they can be totally well intended too oh exactly that's that most of the time you got to assume that people that are are doing it are i mean again you get you you can get jaded into thinking that everybody's a freaking opportunist and everyone's out to try and scam and grift and do that but Mm -hmm. most i I do genuinely believe that most people invoking marx and invoking him to try and make positive are trying to make positive change i believe that we we have to believe that you deal with, uh, you know, accusations of revisionism and, and, and things like that. Um, but also you have to understand that they were coming together under, under class and, and, you know, we, we have to abolish private property. You're not going to get any, any revolution without abolishing private property. That's what Marxism is, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are, 
fights within the groups and and they divide each other up right and they and they're at each other's throats instead of building revolution and that's that's not something we we can have and like you said before when he said you know we appreciate the works of the past revolutionary parties but we have to build something new and we ha- and if they won't go forward with it then we just have to do it without them right we said he said that early in the world early early in the book um, yeah. Yeah, earlier in the book, right? That there's the same kind of thing here, right? That's how the the idea of infighting goes. You know, infighting is bad, but you also can't throw out your principles to stop infighting. If you're if you're right, you're right. Where more than one individual is involved in any life situation, the fact of subjectivism will always make differences based on opinion and interpretation. A problem in exchanges in reaching the necessary means for the initiation of collective activity. Some debate will always be carried on. However, on the basics, we must somehow agree or nothing will get done. All opinions are not of equal value, and there is such a thing as a counterproductive revisionism. Stupidity is not unknown to our long-range political policymakers. Participation in electoral politics organized by the enemy state after reorganizing that whole that the whole pro- after recognizing that the whole process must be discredited as a conditional step into revolution and particularly participation that tends to authenticate this process is the opposite of revolution. It's a tactic for the ultra-rightists. With history as a guide, we could never make such monumental errors. The history of the U.S., the blood-soaked, urine-steeped essence of its being, the wreckage and demise of its human character under the wheels of a 200-year-old headlong flight with headless, frightened animals at the controls of a machine that has mastered them, allows for no appeal on a strictly ideological level. George Wallace or Adolf Hitler would fare better at the polls of an honest election than Huey Newton and Tom Hayden. But again, what is an honest election after the fact of monopoly capital? Mm -hmm. Repression is indeed a part of revolution, a natural aspect of antithesis, the always to be expected defense attack reflex of the beleaguered toothless tiger. All arguments against this fundamental fact are false and labored to the point of being completely illogical. Can power be seriously challenged without a response? Will the robber baron, the tycoon, the fuhrer allow us to seize his privilege without resistance? Can we steal it away from the greatest bandit of all time with sleight of hand alone? Incredible. The fascists understand the value of mass psychology, are familiar with its use, and hold the all-important implements of its effective control. But they are not aware of our existence and our general strategy regarding the reaching of the people. Reaching of people, not the people. Yeah. The whole situation could be reduced to a minority ruling clique engaging the people's vanguard elements for control of the masses. The ruling clique approaches its task with a what to think program. The vanguard elements have the much more difficult job of promoting how to think. No tactic can be ignored or discounted in such a battle. Power responds to th- all threats. The response is repression. If the threat is a small one, the fascist tactic is to laugh it off. I ignore it. Isolate it with its defense mechanism. Media. The greater the threat, the greater the corresponding violence from power. The now, only... Oh, oh yeah. Go that ahead. Is, that is a vital thing, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, media is the big bully. And anything that's not a big threat, that's that's their first line of defense, right? That's, oh, yeah. That's essentially their, their clandestine support of it. Um, but... 
they're happy to escalate it to anything else. They'll take whatever they have to. Again, you know, we've talked about this when people use the term like conspiracy theory, right? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean just because you're on the right side politically that you're like magically immune from these things. You know, there are, there are people that have decided that like, you know, trans rights or or somehow some government conspiracy. And it's like, no, these, these are the most oppressed people. Shut the fuck up. Right. (laughs) Um, but, but the fact of the matter is, is like any political ideology you have, you have to believe there's something conspiratorial. It's the only way the world makes sense, right? So you can believe it's a mystical cabal of gays and Jews and be super right, right? You can believe it's just, you know, the the far right and the far left and anyone out in the extremities and the communists and and, and Russia and, and any bad thing and, and everybody's sinking American democracy or, or whatever, right? Or you can be like, okay, powerful people with a lot of money and means and time will use that money and means and time to hold on to their power and money. That makes fucking sense, right? Yeah. And it's historically tracked all the goddamn time. And that's what they're going to do, you know? And, and they're going to make sure they're going to conspire and, and make sure that, that they hold on to their power. That's that's their reflex. That's their reaction. Yep. Um, also, something he talked about here, and this is good. A lot of times people appeal Again, you know, maybe American culture, and this is the idea of democracy being a voting thing alone, right? Democracy being something you can just poll, you know, feeding everyone. If people voted 60% not to do it would suddenly not be in people's interest in most people's minds. Yeah. And that doesn't make any fucking sense. Feeding everyone is, of course, in everyone's interest. The idea of democracy is to prevent tyranny, right? Is to make sure that a leader is doing the will of the people. If a leader is doing the will of the people and there's a democracy holding them accountable, that's perfect. But if someone's democratically elected, they're not doing the will of the people. What the fuck does that matter? And is the will of the people what they feel like voting for that day or is it what they need? Right. And so, you know, this is where you talk about winning the masses. Of course, you have to have the masses behind you, but you don't have to walk out there and poll like 60% of people say thumbs up to, to violent, you know, guerrilla revolution. That doesn't make any fucking sense. No. You know, you have to take the action. You have to guide and show the people, but you have to be working for the people and you have to have your power coming from the people. And so you always are tying it back to understanding what people's actual needs are now, what their actual experiences are, building that into political action and a plan, taking that political action and showing people it can be done and educating people reciprocally, all in an environment where everything is designed to make that illegal, to come down violently on it and to convince people that you're, you know, in the wrong and you're something cancerous for them. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what we're really working on. Yeah, 100%. You want to do the reading? Sure. Uh, the only effective challenge to power is one that is broad enough to make isolation impossible and intensive enough to cause repression to affect the normal lifestyle of as many members of society as possible. By compromising and playing a class war, we lose. If some effective means of threatening to wield power is not used in the open stages of revolutionary activity, repression will concentrate itself on the vanguard elements only, when the ideal situation is for the people to feel this raw essence of power. Nothing can bend consciousness more effectively than a false arrest, a no-knock invasion, careless, panic-stricken gunfire. These will frighten some, anger others. Common sense alone tells us whom the people will turn their anger against. Perhaps for a short time they will be angry at us, but since the pig is a pig, it won't be long before his anger is channeled in the right direction. Um, and and something that's really not tapped into here in this sentence um, by by George, but is... 
you can think a little hard and, and understand it. This is a major purpose of, of, you know, segregation and white flight and stuff. Again, laissez faire stuff that takes care of itself because the people doing it understand that it'll take care of itself. They've created these conditions and they're going to benefit from it. But the general segregated regions is important, right? People in white suburbs don't see cops shooting people every day. And they think, oh, cops are great. And they'll throw their little, like, thin blue line flag shut every there. But you go to these isolated, poor neighborhoods um, where the population is going to be more people of color, especially black people, and cops are terrorizing these neighborhoods, and consciousness is going to raise, but they're going to be isolated from other people and put at odds with other people and derived from their power, right? And so we have to put power back into those people, back in into the indigenous people on the res, back into... The people, you know, in these isolated, segregated neighborhoods. Um, and the best way to do that is to just organize people in these communities. Yep. Revolution builds in stages. It isn't cool or romantic. It's bold and vicious. It's stalking and being stalked. The opposition rising above our level of violence to repress us and our forces learning how to counter this repression and again pulling ourselves above their level of violence. That process repeats itself again and again until finally the level is reached where the real power of the people is felt and the ruling class is suppressed. The power of the people lies in its greater potential violence. And this power of the people, their greater potential violence, can be brought to fruition only if the conditions in urban society are created by the application of the Foucault theory. Uh, footnote on that, the Foucault theory grew out of the Cuban Revolution and refers to the more or less slow building up through guerrilla warfare of a mobile strategic force, which would be the nucleus of a people's army and a future socialist state, which makes perfect sense in the context of the Cuban Revolution, especially. Yes. Uh, the Foucault theory can be effective only when it does not allow itself to be isolated from the people, thus exposing itself to the vastly superior firepower of the corporate state. There is no doubt that Fidel's Foucault was the motor to the revolution in Cuba, but nor can there be any doubt that Fidel's organizational genius made sure that the Foucault remained in the center of the much bigger revolutionary movement, which it controlled or guided for its military and political advantage. The Foucault may well be the best part best tactic to mount the motor but it needs a long period of preparation intensive organizational work to set up an efficient reliable machinery which will not only generate the atmosphere for armed struggle by focos but will guarantee also guarantee their logistic communication survival programs and propaganda network the traditional communist parties of the world claim that they are doing just that and have been mostly peacefully for 40 years that is not what Behar had in mind when he said there may have been real stages of hard underground life. Behar and the new left revolutionaries all over the world know very well that a revolutionary lifestyle is a warrior's lifestyle. By stages, he meant stages of combat, and that is precisely the way in which revolutionaries can be honed into the kind of organization capable of leading a people's war. That's back to uh, Jurassic, who he had cited earlier in this work. Yeah. Um. Oh, I was just going to take over. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we're at an impasse now because the next level of revolutionary consciousness and activity cannot be reached without calling down on the nation a corresponding and perhaps overreactionary repression. And it's not the people who dread this next level of commitment. They don't understand the significance of it as yet. The dread, the fear rests with some of the old guard elements. I refer you again to Mao. When revolutionary, when revolution fails, it's the fault of the vanguard party. 
Some of the fear is an honest fear that revolution will be repressed entirely. These thinkers have a historical references that roll them back to Europe and to the time of Hitler's Germany and Italy in the 20s and 30s. But I say that can never happen here. That was too long ago, too far away, and none of those European countries had 30 million irate Negroes on their hands. None of that ever had to happen for the same reason that we don't have to allow it to happen. All reactionary movements depend principally on a handful of individuals, sometimes one individual. There are many thousands of ways to correct individuals. The best way is to send one armed expert. I don't mean to outshoot him with logic. I mean to correct him. Slay him, assassinate him with thuggy, by silence pistol, shotgun, with a high-powered rifle shooting from 400 yards away and behind a rock. Suffocation, strangulation, crucifixion, burning with a flamethrower, dispatched by bomb. Again, he's not shy about this. He's, he's a, really, he's, really not. Yeah. Uh, auto accidents happen all day. People drown. People get uh, poliaxed. Breathe noxious oh. gases. What? People get poliaxed? A poliaxed? Yeah. Wasn't a poliax like a medieval weapon that they? What? How many people are getting poliaxed in the year nineteen seventy one? Um, I is I that don't a, know. Is that a synonym for something I don't know? Because the only poliax I know is like a weapon in a Dark Souls game. Yeah, no, it's it's just. It's a medieval battle axe. All right. It's a pole axe, so there you go. Um, uh, they get stabbed, they get poisoned with bad water, rats, bane, germicides, hemlock, arsenic, concentrate, cyanide, hydrosonic acid, vitriol. A snake could bite them. Nicotine oil is deadly. An overdose of dope. There's a deadly nightshade, belladonna, datura, wolfsbane, foxglove. Aconite, tomaine, botulism, and the death of a thousand cuts. But a curse won't work. So he's basically, he's going through all of the ways someone dies and then saying, but cursing them doesn't do shit, right? Yeah. Like, you can't live in this idealistic world. You can't just debate down reaction. You know, there is, again, a big deal for public discourse, right? I I maintain debate is for the third-party listener, right? Oh, always, and, yeah. And the point is, is if you leave things unchallenged, and the problem with debate is if you allow them to dominate the subjects, right? Even if you're bunking stuff, the, the subject is still on, was this thing bad? Did this bad thing happen? Did whatever, is whatever thing true? Right. And that's, that's suddenly up in the air. But unfortunately, reactionaries do that. That's a tactic of theirs is to throw everything in question. Right. But. Whatever it is, whether you're defending, you know, your beliefs or, or the people on the side of history you're on, um, or whether you're expounding ideas for the third party person to become politically educated or to become, you know, more confident and buy in to, to the understanding of, of revolutionary education and radicalize that way or to defend them from buying into reactionary stuff. Debate is for the third party person. But the fact of the matter is whether you are with me on that or not, Everybody should be able to agree. You're not going to debate a person one-on-one -on -one out of being a reactionary. If they're a Nazi, they're a Nazi, right? Yeah. And there is, there is again, there is a whole spectrum of people. There are people that have had bad opinions. There are people that have had reactionary mm -hmm. stances. I, again, hi, libertarian. 
did that whole did that whole thing like you know live that life and and can be brought around but it is not going to happen one-on-one in a debate and the more entrenched you are in that belief the less likely that that is going to happen you're not going to see someone debate jordan peterson into suddenly being a marxist like that's not going to happen um no you're, you're you're not going to debate someone that has a swastika tattooed on their chest and convince them during the middle, you know, that this is the first time they're hearing this or this is their you know thing that they're they're going to come over. It, it is a slow process. So again, it's that balancing act between do we accept people that genuinely have reformed and want to come over versus uh, fuck you, you've had a bad opinion and you're banished now for all of eternity. It's a shitty game to play. Um, yes, but it but it is it is something we have to balance. Yeah, and George Jackson's idea here, of course, is someone who's dangerous, someone who's going to be a threat to your life. It's not worth trying to debate stuff out of them. Broadly, as a class, white supremacists are not going to go away exactly. with debate, right? When you the individual yeah. person, the individual person, if they are going to be violent and threaten the life of, you know, um, black people of of anybody who's uh, of an oppressed mass of the of the oppressed masses right you know to defend them you're going to have to take that guy out and that that's a piece of the revolution mm-hmm. right um and conversely as a broad mass there you're not going to change that through debate you no. know and so he's focusing on the individual violence here but also that expounds to broad masses exactly we're going to have to fight to win. The logic of procrastination has been destroyed. A people can never be so repressed that they can't strike back in some way. We will purge the paltroons and fight, or just ignore them. The reality of power's automatic defense reflexes makes it possible for us to measure our own effectiveness. Their efforts to seriously repress us indicate that we have reached people, that we are finally getting in the fight, and cannot ever be truly repressed. There is quite simply no way for an established government to defeat an internal, determined, aggressive enemy, especially in an urban society. The mechanics, logic, and logistics of urban people's guerrilla warfare cannot be defeated. In the opening stages of such a conflict, before a unified left can be established, before most people have accepted the inevitability of war, before we were able to militarily organize massive violence, we must depend on limited, selective violence tied to an exact political purpose. In the early service of the people, there must be totally committed, professional revolutionaries who understand that all human life is meaningless if it is not accompanied by the controls that determine its qualities. I am one of these. My life has absolutely no value i'm a man under hatches the desperate one we will make the revolution nothing can stop us we are not intimidated by the specter of repression we're already repressed the black legion and their terror leaves us cold unafraid we will meet with the counter terror we will never allow ourselves to be immobilized by a tactic that actually works better for us the lynch murder of a friend it makes me angry not afraid i'm not I'm the next man that must be lynched. My forefather trembled when his brother was lynched, but my brother's immolation means war to the death, war to the utmost, war to the knife. Well, that is as good a place to end it as any. Before we do end it, just a thing. The Black Legion, if you were not aware, as I wasn't, was an armed anti-labor terrorist group that was active in the 30s, reputedly financed by sections of the automotive industry. Which means if it was financed in the 30s by sections of the automotive industry, it was financed by Henry Ford. (laughs) Yes. Um Good God. Weird. Uh, Weird how the fascist guy would use a brown shirts tactic. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Just change the color of the shirts and call it a day. I was going to say, were they not related to the the Pinkertons, too? The Black... uh, I don't know. I guess they weren't tied to the Pinkertons. 
No, it looks like they were just a white supremacist terrorist organization yes. active in the Midwestern United States during the Depression of the 30s. It split off from the Klan. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Split off from the Klan uh, and included Detroit's police chief. Yeah, Detroit. Weird. Again, going back to Henry Ford. And again, cops, of course, are part of this. And don't worry, gang, if you Google the Black Legion and look up their outfits, you can see why they broke off from the Klan, because they're just wearing the exact... Imagine a Klan uniform. Now, um, make it black, and then put a silly pirate hat on top of it, because that's <laughs> what you get when you look at their uniform. Uh, it is it is, it is, is pretty... It would be comical if they weren't absolute psychopaths. Yes. Um, so again, I mean, KKK tactics, of course, they, they, they broke off from the Klan. Cops are involved there because cops and Klan go hand in hand. Um, it was Detroit and went against laborers of the automotive industry because, of course, Henry Ford would use the brown shirts tactics. Of course, this stuff is all intertwined. Oh, of course. And that's, and that's exactly the stuff, you know, Jackson is talking about, right? Like someone comes out, you're not going to debate the Black Legions, right? Mm-hmm. It's kill or be killed. Exactly. At that point, you're 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 fighting for your life, and that's mm-hmm. and that's something again that we and that's why we do the context episodes for these. That's why we go we go through this so you know to to try and give the. I mean, imagine when George Jackson is writing this. He is. I mean, he has to know he's at the end of his life, one way or another. The way the way that the raid went down, the way that the the prison escape went down, was not something that someone that was convinced that they were going to be going about their life would be doing um yeah. it just doesn't seem to be that was the case and he knew the threats on his life were real he knew that they had been coming for years so oh, yeah. that absolutely is going to inform the urgency with which he's writing this yes and that was something we said before you know i mean whether his urgency was is is real because he sees things bald-facedly um you know coming after him um or whether it was you know a reasonable paranoia but but nonetheless you know Something that's not always applicable, whether it was very real for him, but not applicable in every situation. You know, we're going to let the people make that that judgment. But all you're talking about at that point is a difference of scale. He was right. You know, there's not enough action. There's not enough, you know, sitting down. He's correct that it should be separate from the party and its people's programs and political platform and, and things like that. Right. There should be something separate and clandestine. And that it has to exist, you know. You're you're not again. This is the Fanon stuff. We talked about this with um, Wretched of the Earth, right? You're you're going to find your humanity in the violence because it's been taken by violence, right? You know, you're you you have to out, go out there and declare that your lives matter because they've been taken away, and you have to do that with with force, and you have to do that with you know a very real at least threat to violence, if not violence itself. All right, gang. Well, that being said, we are going to end it there um, on page thirty-four. Uh, mm-hmm. Making good time through this book. We're 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 hop skipping and jumping through it. About about yes. a little over ten pages an episode. That's 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 about where we want to be. Um, that being said, you can reach out to us in a number of different ways if you'd like to do that. First of which is to email us marksmadnesspod at gmail uh, The next way you can reach out to us would be on Twitter. Our Twitter is at marksmadnesspod. Uh, DMs are open. We're there if you need us, and we will retweet episodes when we remember to. And uh, and when we're not, we're we're just trying to retweet other good things and occasionally put out actual tweets. It's rare. 
but we, we do it. Uh, last but not least, you can always join us on our Discord server. Our Discord is the Mark's Madness Pod Discord. It is linked in our Twitter bio, and it is also available through email if you would prefer not ever access Twitter. Um, it is a great place. It is full of comrades and people that are, are genuinely empathetic and want to want to listen and, and learn and, and try and help comrades as best they can. Um, there is a book club that is always running concurrently along the show uh, doing a different work, so you can get even more theory crammed into your day. Um, and last but not least, there is uh, us playing video games because we do that quite often as well. Uh, mostly Final Fantasy fourteen, but you know that Elden Ring thing. Whew! Whew! It's tough. Uh... <laughs> that being said, David, I believe it is time for a disclaimer. Yes. So obviously we're reading this um, so that oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I see. I don't have a script for this. And I got no, it's ahead. never scripted, baby. It's and, all, it's and, all live and, off the dome. And it is live off the dome. And I totally I totally screwed up on how I wanted to approach it now. <laughs> um, so we started this podcast. Nathan wanted to read Capital, and it's better to read works of theory and works of history with someone else. So uh, we were reading Capital together, uh, going through it, discussing it, um, and we decided to record it because there was only two of us. That was a pretty small group. And eventually we had enough recordings. We decided, you know what? We'll go forward with a podcast. And lo and behold, a few years later, there's quite a bit of you here with us. And so ever since then, what our vision was, was that hopefully you're out there and a party in an organization doing the on the ground work and whatever work you're doing uh hopefully your reading group your political education group for that party that organization is reading this along with us and let's say that they're not they're reading something shorter something more applicable to the project they're on and you're reading this on your own hopefully we can be that reading group we can give you another voice another chance to review over the work another perspective a little more context make sure you're getting what you need out of the theory and let's say that's not happening it's either a book like this where it's more of an enhanced ebook uh, and we read it more word for word, or it's a book we summarize more. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you. We want them out there guiding your action. When these works are guiding your, you into revolutionary actions, every one of those actions is called praxis. Uh, praxis as a phenomenon, of course, can't exist without theory, and theory is completely useless without praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.